This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you by Lloyds Bank. With their Club Lloyds current account, you can now get 12 months of Disney Plus as your lifestyle benefit. To know me is to know that I love watching things on TV, so I am so excited to tell you about this. You might think that Disney Plus is just for Disney films. And yes, it's great for all of them. We must have watched Disney's Frozen at least 100 times by now. But it's so much more than that. With Disney Plus, there is endless entertainment with exclusive originals, brand new series, blockbuster movies. And it's just one of the great benefits that you can now get with a Club Lloyds account. I highly recommend watching The Bear if you haven't seen it yet. It's all about a talented chef who's presented with the challenge of overhauling his family sandwich shop. Season two is coming soon and I can't wait. Lloyds Bank are taking care of not only your banking needs, but entertainment too. Visit lloydsbank.com forward slash Club Lloyds to find out more. £3 monthly fee is charged to maintain the Club Lloyds account, but waived each month that you pay in £2,000 or more. UK residents, 18 and over, Disney Plus subscription required. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. I don't know about you, but the weeks are flying past at the moment and I feel like my feet are barely touching the ground. It's July next week, which is just incredible to think. But maybe it's also because it doesn't quite feel like summer has arrived yet, does it? It just hasn't made up its mind. But despite all that, we have a lovely episode for you today. It's a slightly chatty one. So much of what Sophie was saying really resonated with me and perhaps it will do with you too. We debate important things like what really makes the best crisp sandwich. I might have a slightly controversial addition to this conversation, but I stand by it. The texture and the taste of those purple ones is what it's all about. I actually think me and my husband fell in love over that particular crisp sandwich, so perhaps that's why I think it's so great. Sophie's so passionate about food and that really shines through and it's what we love to hear on this podcast. She's got her own podcast, which is back on the air with a new season, which is very exciting. So if you love hearing from Sophie, make sure you check that out. I will pop the link and all the information in the show notes. That's enough waffling from me. Thank you again to our sponsors for today's episode, Lloyd's Bank. And I do hope you enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Sophie Wybird. Sophie is a cook and recipe developer. After deciding to embark on a career in food while in her final year at university, she then trained at the world-famous Leeds before working as a food stylist and a chef at Quo Vadis. She made a name for herself in the world of food as head of food at Mob, the online food magazine, and has since gone on to host supper clubs, a podcast, and having amassed a loyal army of followers, she took the leap to go freelance last year. Sophie says her food represents comfort first and foremost. I would really like for my legacy to be as somebody who cooked food that was honest, comforting, hearty and simple. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you for having me. Lovely introduction. (laughs) How do you feel at the idea of being sent to a desert island? 
I think I would quite like it, actually. Yeah. I think I'm one of those people who's quite an introverted extrovert. And I love being around my friends and family, but I also really love relaxing by myself. Okay. I think I might like a bit of solitude. <laughs> are you a resourceful kind of person? Are you just going to embrace the island or are you going to be trying to get off it? I think I will be embracing it. I would, I'm would. i not really that proactive with sorting stuff like that. I wouldn't say I'm the most practical person in the world apart from with cooking. So I think I'd just cook myself up some nice stuff. Yeah, just Start use it as a to. nice break. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the perfect quiet. excuse to not have to socialise. A little social media detox. <laughs> I think this is a surprisingly difficult question to answer, but I think it's quite a good one. So how would you describe yourself in three words? Ooh, that's a really hard question. I would say that the three words to describe me would probably be friendly, enthusiastic, and loyal. Hmm. Those are good words. A mixed three. Maybe friendly and enthusiastic fall under the same category. But. That's very nice. <laughs> friendly is the best thing that you can be. In almost all the interviews that I read, you describe yourself as being very greedy. Yes. And I, th <laughs> I think so often this word has really negative connotations almost. And I think reclaiming it as a positive is a really good thing. I mean, if you're going to cook someone's food or eat their food, then you want to do that safe in the knowledge that they love to eat, surely. Yeah, totally. I think that anyone who works in food really at the heart of it is because they really love to eat. Mm. And, it, and if not, then perhaps they're Alarm doing bells. the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like exactly. For me, nothing worse than being fed by a feeder who you know isn't also really enjoying the food. Totally, totally. Mm. What's that book called? Never Trust a Skinny Chef. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Sorry to all the skinny chefs out there. <laughs> I know you grew up in a household where food was a central character and it sounds like it's always been a really big part of your life. So let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. So my parents are both really, really great cooks. And my mum was cooking a lot of incredible food my whole childhood. So I need to, I need to preface what I'm going to say with that. Okay. Because my favourite childhood meal was sausages, mash and baked beans. Ooh. And it's still one of my favourite meals in the universe. I felt like I couldn't come to this podcast and talk about my eight dishes that I feel like would define me in some way without talking about sausages, mash and baked beans. So good. <laughs> Why is it such a good combo? It's just so comforting. Mm. And still now, as an adult, it's a meal that I reach for when I'm really tired, when I've just got back from a holiday, when... I had a really busy day. That's the meal that I want to eat that I find so comforting. Yeah. And do you still have it when you go back home? I, do you know what? I don't think I've had it at my parents' house for a really long time. My parents have probably graduated from yeah. feeding us that after many years of doing so. <laughs> I know. My mum's food is so different now to what she was cooking when we were younger. Like, yeah. you know, big family dishes and now couldn't be further from that. I don't think, like, the availability of ingredients and, like, the trends mm. have changed quite mm. a lot from, like, my childhood in the 90s to now. Like, my mum is cooking a lot more the kind of food that everyone else cooks these days, you know, your kind of big, vibrant salads. And she cooks a lot of Diana Henry recipes. Mm. She goes and finds her and do in the supermarket and brings that home to cook the thing with, you know, there was none of that in my childhood. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if you were a child now, would your mum be cooking the food that she's cooking now? Or, or somehow when you're a parent, do you revert to those traditional family dishes just because it's easier some way? And it's nostalgic. Yeah. I don't know, do you do that? 
Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But we all, I, we try to all eat the same thing. So yeah, I think that's nice. You say that you've always been exceptionally interested in food and that your life is structured around your meals, which is very, <laughs> very relatable. You have sisters. Do they also feel the same way about food? Do you know, I think they do, but I think I'm the one who is the most enthusiastic about it. Okay. I mean, they're all really keen eaters um, in different ways, but everyone has their own like little things they like less, like more. Uh, one of my sisters is vegan, one's vegetarian. There's a lot of different dietary habits happening, but we still manage to come together for big family meals pretty frequently. Mm. Even though we're all adults now, we love congregating at my parents' house, getting together with all our partners. There's a baby now, <gasps> there's a dog, there's like just big rowdy family meals still happening all the time. And everyone's very much enthusiastic about that. Mm. I just think the notion of nature versus nurture is so interesting, like whether it's genetic or it is just how you grew up. And it's interesting to think of it in the context of siblings. Yeah, absolutely. It was when you were a student at Manchester University that you thought about trying to turn your passion for food into a career. So up until that point, what did you think you were going to do for work? Do you know, I had no idea. <laughs> it was one of those things where I think like lots of people do. I went to university not really knowing why I was going to university. Mm. What did you read? I did anthropology, which was super interesting. And I think does inform lots of my ways of thinking now still. But very much didn't go into anything that was useful in that regard professionally. Um, I think I thought maybe I'd go into PR or there was a point where I thought maybe I'd train to be a lawyer or something. Mm. Um, but I think I'm nowhere near serious enough to do anything like that. <laughs> and I knew that I just wanted to do something that was really creative. I was cooking a lot of food throughout my time at uni, actually. In my first year, my second year, my third year, I was cooking constantly and cooking massive meals for my housemates. I lived with 10 people mm. and I used to cook enormous meals for everyone. For everyone's birthday, I'd cook a massive meal or we'd do big Sunday roasts. And I think I was like, yeah, I need to, I need to do this. Dream housemate, Sophie. <laughs> Wish I'd lived with you at uni. Let's pause there and talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. So the first dish that I learned to cook was something that my mum calls bang bang chicken, mm -hmm. which is not like the bang bang chicken that you see on menus now. It's okay. basically a chicken escalope. It's like mm. a chicken milanese. Bang bang because she's bashed it. Bang bang because you're bashing it. That's what we <laughs> called it. So it was getting us standing on a chair, my mum getting the cling film on the surface, getting a chicken breast on it, more cling film on top and getting us to bash it with a rolling pin. I love that. And I then think I'm going to steal that. It. Do it. It's honestly so much fun as a kid. And then you get to dip it in the flour, dip it in the egg, dip it in the breadcrumbs. And then she would pan fry it. I'm not sure we were allowed to get near the oil. Yeah. But I remember always feeling so satisfied that I'd had a role in that process. Mm. And that is, I mean, that is a great technique to learn as well. Panning. Yeah. Keeping one hand with the dry stuff, one hand with the wet stuff yeah. at a very young age. In case you get an itchy nose. Yeah, exactly. So how old were you when you were doing that, do you think? I think I would have started doing that from probably about three or four. Mm. My mum did a lot of interactive cooking with us. There was a lot of baking and things like that. Mm. And there was also, I mean, in the classic way that lots of kids do, making pizzas. It's such a good idea because it's fun and cooking yeah. is fun. And I think if you can learn that from a really young age, you're so far ahead of other people who haven't had that opportunity because essentially at the end of the day, if it's not fun then you're not going to be interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that people have a habit of making cooking feel slightly more exclusive and stressful than it yeah. needs to be. And really the simple stuff is the really good stuff. Yeah, completely. And if you're really stressed by it, 
it's probably not the right thing for you to be cooking. When you talk about wanting to work in food, you describe it as being a craving for connection and the social nature of cooking. That's obviously what food has always meant to you. Did it continue to mean that now that it's your job? Because cooking in a restaurant or creating recipes online is different to cooking for your friends. So has what food means to you changed over time? I think that the core of it is there, no matter which part of the industry I've worked in. I think it's just always so innately social food. Mm. And it is always about connecting with people. You know, in restaurants, you're connecting with people by putting food on their plates and you may not be explicitly speaking to them, but you're connected through what you fed them. And when you're writing recipes online and people are cooking them, that is probably my favourite kind of connection that you form. When people message you saying they've cooked your recipes... That's incredible. Just It's this long line of connection where you're, you're giving someone the tools to make a meal and then making that for somebody that they love. Mm. And that's really magical. The thought of being in someone else's kitchen in that way is kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think I've always consumed a lot of recipe books and online recipes kind of since I was really young. I was obsessed with flicking through recipe books and the thought that my recipes could provide a similar kind of joy to somebody at home is quite mind-blowing to me and still really exciting. Were you ever nervous about turning your greatest passion into your job? Like, were you ever worried that it would change your love for it? I think that in really busy times, I sometimes think, will I ever have a good idea ever again? (laughs) But it always comes back. It's really the only thing that I've properly cared about and could see myself working in. And I didn't really have any other choice but to pursue that. And I think that you obviously have ebbs and flows of periods of inspiration periods when you're a bit more tired and sometimes you know I do just want to eat a jacket potato with some baked beans when I get home and I think it's important to say that that like it's not a constant well of cooking extravagant meals at home and having these really grand ideas sometimes you you do feel less inspired than other times yeah it's totally fine it's part of the process and that is totally normal and that's you know what everyone experiences like life is sometimes a jacket potato Totally. And in all industries, I'm sure it's a thing that everyone thinks about. The third desert island dish is the best dish you've ever eaten. This is probably the hardest one to answer, I would say. My brain was swimming with all the delicious meals I've ever had. It's normally the holiday food that I come back to when I think of the really spectacular ones. I live in London and there's obviously so much incredible food here that I eat all the time. But... I think the best meal that I ever had was in, it was in the Basque country. It was in this little town called Gataria, which is just along the coast from San Sebastian. Mm -hmm. And I went on holiday there with my boyfriend a few years back. Uh, His uncle and aunt lived there and they took us to their favourite restaurant, which is just outside San Sebastian by the sea. And we had, you know, your whole grilled turbot covered in crispy garlic, the perfect calamari beautifully charred peppers I just really love that really simple northern Spanish Mm -hmm. style of cooking and I feel like it's only really now getting the recognition that it deserves Mm, Spanish food's amazing yeah and there's something so special about eating it right on the sea watching the sunset eating the freshest bit of fresh that you've seen under the grill oh 
Also, holiday food is really special because even if you come back and recreate it, it can be great, but it will never be quite the same because the ingredients are different and there's, totally. so many, there's so much nuance to actually being in the country, isn't it? You can follow the recipe exactly and it will never be the same. No. I'm one of those people who always has to bring home something that they had oh, on holiday you? and you open it and eat it and you're like, oh. Yeah, well, even like a jar of spices or something. A jar of or... spices or a bag of crisps mm. or some biscuits that you had or like a slice of cake you had in a bakery. Yeah. And you taste it at home and it's just never the same when you're in your little flat in London, is yeah. it? Yeah, no, I remember <laughs> that's brought back a really vivid memory when I was a teenager. We went to Turkey and had this amazing apple tea. So we I love loads. that stuff. It's so good, but it does not taste the same in no. rainy London as it does <laughs> in hot, gorgeous Turkey. That was like a real lesson. I remember thinking like, oh, okay, it was loads to do with the experience and where it was. It wasn't just the tea, but it is good tea. Yeah, it's delicious. You trained at Leith's Cookery School. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, how long was the course? When did you decide to do it? So I did the nine-month course. Um, I Basically, when I graduated junior, I did loads of internships at food magazines. I really thought that was the route I was going to go down because that was kind of where food media yeah. existed solely in that period. Um, and they all said that you need to go and do training. To join the food teams at food magazines, they all said you need to go and do proper training. So I thought, right, I have to do it. I have to do it. So I went and did it, and the food nerd in me just found it so interesting to learn all about kind of the whys and the hows of why you do things and if something goes wrong, how you fix it, which I think for recipe development is really great knowledge mm. to have under your belt. So you learn so much just by working and doing it. But I loved learning there. It was a really, really fun nine months. And then it's funny because by the time I left, food magazines were just not... I mean, they're still really prevalent and they're still kind of great jobs that you can get there. But there's not that many jobs in mm. food magazines. That's really interesting because, yeah, it's sort of like they were the gatekeepers to a career in that side of the food industry. And, and they're laying down the rules that you need to go to cookery school and, you know, that's a lot of power. The landscape has changed so much. Totally. Which is good and bad. But in that regards, I feel like that's only ever a good thing, that there aren't now an elite group of people telling you how to get into a career. Totally. I think it really, like, democratises mm. the process and obviously, like, going to cooking school is really expensive mm. and it's something that I love doing and I would say it was a great experience, but it is expensive and I don't think that you need to do it. I don't think that if if you're concerned about the cost of it, you need to do it and there's loads of other ways to break mm. into it. I think the biggest thing, maybe, I don't know if you agree, but with cookery school, it's almost like the confidence that it gives you. Totally. It's confirming to you, because as a home cook, your friends and family can tell you that you're great at cooking and you can love cooking, but you yeah. don't really know where you are and then when you go to cookery school it kind of confirms like oh, okay I do actually know what I need to know and I can do this yeah exactly and just being around such cool ingredients mm. I don't know if you felt like this but I felt like this oh okay this is how I was meant to feel at university <laughs> like yeah. I never missed a lecture I never missed a day like I was the first in I was like total geek Whereas I, I can't pretend I was like that at university, but it was a really nice feeling because I was like, oh, I am passionate about something. Like I can be really interested and engaged. It just, you know, geography wasn't that for It me. was the wrong thing. <laughs> no, I had exactly the same. I wrote down every word that was said in every single lecture. I, I have so many notebooks filled with everything that I 
furiously scribbled down. It's a really nice feeling. Yeah, totally. You worked in food PR before working as a chef at Quo Vardis in Soho. Had you always wanted to work in a restaurant and how did you find that? I think that I hadn't always wanted to work in a restaurant, but I knew that I wanted to gain some practical skill. I actually worked at Quo Vardis before I went to Leeds, weirdly. Okay. For like 10 months before I worked at Quo Vardis. Um, So that's interesting, isn't it? To get into food media and recipe development, you should go to cookery school. But just to get going and hit the ground running and go into a restaurant. So it, it just shows like there are so many different ways to get into food and you don't need to go to cookery school. It's the thing that's so great about the industry is there are so many different things you can do and there yeah. are now so, so many avenues. And the restaurant route, I do think, is a really brilliant route. I learned so much working at Quo Vardis. I mean, I didn't know what so many things were before I started working there. I remember my first week being asked to go and get a kohlrabi from the fridge and furiously Googling what a kohlrabi <laughs> looked like while standing in the walk-in. And You're lucky there was Wi-Fi in there. <laughs> I know, thank God. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I never really thought I was going to work in restaurants because, to be honest, the hours just don't really work for me. I'm not a night owl. I love an early night. And I also love hanging out with my family and my friends. Yeah. And none of them really work in hospitality. Um, They mostly have, you know, your classic nine to fives. And I found that I was missing out on a lot of the stuff that's really important to me in my life, working in restaurants, because I wasn't getting to see them. It's a a big sacrifice. Totally. And I think lots of people are really good at plowing away at it for a long time. And maybe they've got lots of other friends in hospitality and stuff. But for me, I was just like, no, I want to be, I want to be with all my people. So I'll go and learn some stuff. And then I'll go and find a nice job in food that doesn't have those hours. Food is such a creative thing. And then somehow working in a restaurant where it can become much less creative because you're fulfilling someone else's vision of food and so you're sort of going through the motions and learning lots but did you find it was less creative yeah no no I think that's definitely the case I I mean I was so junior there that I think I was just learning so much on the job and really getting to grips with all the techniques and how service works Mm. and I knew that the, the practical side of it I found really gratifying I knew that I wanted to do practical cooking stuff rather than kind of being food industry adjacent, if that makes sense. Um, But I think if I'd worked there, worked in restaurants for a longer time, I probably would have at a point started to find it a bit more creatively stifling. Mm. How did you feel? Like, I can so clearly remember, like, the feeling before service is about to begin. Like, it's so... (laughs) I just, like, praying that all the customers would cancel and that no one would turn up. (laughs) When you start hearing the check machines go off. I still hear it sometimes when I'm going to sleep. If I've had a really stressful day, you hear a check machine go off. And also, I can preface that by saying that Quo Vardis, I think, is about as nice a restaurant environment as you could possibly work mm. in. The kitchen's really spacious. There's loads of staff. Um, the team's really lovely. It's very much not a kind of aggressive, bolshy, old school restaurant environment. Yeah. Um, but it's still really tough. <laughs> yeah. Completely. Not for the faint hearted. The fourth desert island dish. Sophie, what is your favorite sandwich? It was, a, it was a hard one for me. One of the best sandwiches in the world. The runner up is the beach sandwich on mm. holiday. Okay. 
you know what I mean, by the beach sandwich. You've made it yourself. You've made it yourself. You've gone to the market in the morning. You've got your bread. You've got your nice cured hams. You've got some cheese. You've got maybe some alioli in there. You've got some tomato, some lettuce. I love that sandwich. It gets a bit squished on the beach and you eat it and it's a bit warm. Shove some crisps in there. Yeah. That's my runner-up sandwich. Okay. That's more of a sandwich formula, though. Yeah. I think the best sandwich, really, truly, is a roast chicken sandwich. Soft white bread, just sliced, sliced tin loaf, mm-hmm. quite thickly sliced. Mm-hmm. Cold roast chicken, a herby aioli with some chives, some parsley, possibly some tarragon in there, nice and garlicky. Pickles, important. Some pickled cucumber. Mm. I'll need some pickled cucumber in there. Okay. And some really crisp lettuce. Oh, yeah. And definitely some crisps to shove in there on the mm. side as well. Probably ready salted in this situation. You're putting the crisps inside. I'll put the crisps inside, but as I go. Okay. Because I feel like you almost want to do it per mouthful when you put a crisp in, because otherwise you squash it down and they kind of all disappear and you want the texture. When When you squish it down to keep them secure in the sandwich, they get too crushed. And then the texture's gone. What are you going to do about that? Mm. There is nothing better than a crisp sandwich. I like, love them why so are they much. so good? What is your ultimate crisp sandwich? I think my favourite is loads of butter, loads of mayo, ham, and then any kind of crisp. Any crisp. Like any at of school, them. we used to put, uh, we had a tuck shop, yeah. and we used to put the purple knickknacks in a ham roll. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. Ribbon saucy knickknacks. Are phenomenal the crisps. But you can't find them many places. I know. Where have they gone? I don't know. You can get hot and spicy everywhere, but ribbon saucy. Ribbon saucy is the one. They're isn't elusive. It? Mm, I'm going to go and the, the best. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to have to have that today. It's honestly the best thing. You've worked as a food styling assistant and a food presenter and recipe developer at both Twisted and also Mob. Getting the job at Twisted must have been such a hugely exciting thing. I think you hadn't been out of cookery school that long when it happened. So how did that come about? So I was working as a food styling assistant and although I'm freelance now and loving it, I'm in a much different position now. I think then I found it quite stressful not having a constant Mm. income. Um, I was really enjoying the work, but when you're quite junior and you're just starting out, it's quite hard to figure your way out to getting enough work to sustain you. Yeah. Um, And then I think... I think they approached me via LinkedIn, maybe. Oh, really? My dad always said, keep your LinkedIn updated. And I went, oh, I don't need that in my industry. What are you talking about? And then actually both Twisted and Mob happened through LinkedIn. Oh, really? So That's interesting. moral of the story is Always LinkedIn. listen to your dad. <laughs> and always listen to your dad. They're always right. Um, so they offered me a full-time job there. And really it was a dream come true because I knew I wanted to be in full-time work and I knew that I wanted to be in recipe development and I'd always loved the thought of doing some kind of presenting and the thought that that was possible at Twisted was super exciting. So exciting and what they were doing because they were one of the first to to like they're a food media platform with these hugely popular viral videos and, and that particular format like that must have felt exciting to be part of something you know new yeah absolutely I think in the context of me thinking I was going to work in food magazines and then there not being very many jobs something like that popping up really opened my eyes Mm. to the world of social media how you can make a living through doing that how branded content works and yeah how to make a really good video that people want to watch Mm. because Twisted was yeah they were really one of the first ones along with people like BuzzFeed Tasty to do these kind of 
big, silly, viral food videos. And although it's not the kind of food that you may cook day to day at home, I think it was still some really amazing skills to learn. Mm. And, and it know, got people excited about yeah. food. Like it kind of didn't matter that it wasn't something that you'd actually cook. I don't it was know. entertainment. It was, it was engaged and food hadn't been like that before like it was only entertainment in terms of you know the cuckoo writers that we know from tv shows totally but that's kind of all we had before so. stuff like master chef mm. which is like obviously so entertaining i love watching shows yeah. like master chef but it's like it's less silly getting food into that kind of like big silly social media space i think was a massive thing that's happened when you went on to work at mob where you went in as head of food yeah it was a big, a big jump. <laughs> that, that's a big title and you're, you're, well, you still are so young and early on in your career. Did you ever have imposter syndrome or, I mean, you seem like a very happy, go lucky, confident person, but were you ever filled with that imposter feeling? Oh yeah, totally. Not that you should have been. Just oh no, but like... I think we all are, aren't we? I think like I still am. Yeah. There are days where I think, how has anyone trusted me to do any of this stuff? I don't know anything. I mean, but none of us really know. None of us are ever going to be at the kind of full breadth of our knowledge and we're all learning all the time. Mm. I think the imposter syndrome definitely has waves of coming through. And really, I was just so excited that Ben Liebus had taken a chance on me when I really was still quite junior in my career. Um, and it gave me a lot of confidence in myself that he was confident that I could do the role. Mm. And, and that- so were you given the reins of of dictating what direction the food would take, like what role was head of food? Pretty much, yeah. It was because, so at that point, Mob, it was still a really small company. It was about seven people when I joined. And Ben had been doing all the food up to that point. And then he realised he needed to take more of a CEO stance and step back from doing the food because he kind of didn't have time to do it anymore. Yeah, he kind of gave me free reign to kind of within the guidelines of what we knew the Mob audience wanted, which is food that's accessible and not complicated and not too expensive to make and it's ultimately still pretty simple to cook so that young people will be inspired to cook it I kind of had that framework in place and then it was my role to basically decide all the food content that went out on the page for the rest of the time that I worked there basically it was a massive role really kind of editorially overseeing our entire food output from, you know, the videos we're putting out to helping with the cookbooks to events. It was a massive job. Mm. And the growth that happened during the time that you were there, like you have to take a lot of credit for that, Sophie. It boomed quickly. It boomed really quickly. I hired Seema a couple of months into working there. Then we hired Jordan about six months later. And by the time I left, the team was 70 people. And I was managing a team of six at a point within that as well and so how does it feel now that you've taken the step to go freelance and you are just one person doing what you know a similar role you're but you're doing that for yourself like how does that leap feel it's really strange (laughs) because I think when you're so busy all the time and managing loads of people you do manage to fit quite a lot into the day Mm. and when you're just managing yourself you learn you are nowhere near as disciplined with yourself as you are with your time when you're responsible for a larger organization it's yeah it's been such an adjustment I mean it's great I can I can pop to the gym half through the morning if I don't want to get out of bed till nine I don't have to which is pretty bad. I probably should be a bit more regimented with it now, but (laughs) there are days where I just think, I don't need to. I'm just going to relax and read my book in bed. 
Yeah, I think this is an excuse I, I use a lot with myself. But I think when you're doing something creative, you need time to do nothing. Because yeah. if you don't have that thinking time, like you said, you're going to run out of ideas or, you know, you, you can get a little bit stale. I've read lots of really creative like authors and different people have said this. You need to factor in like daydreaming and thinking time. It's like a weird mentality that you can feel a bit lazy, like you're not doing yeah. anything, but you are you are doing something. Absolutely. It's really, I think when you've worked, I guess I worked in full-time roles for about five years before going freelance. And you do, you're in the mode of being productive all the time in a nine to five. And there isn't really the space to sit and think about those things. It's good to just switch how you think about it. Your boss might not be as understanding if you're like, I'm just thinking <laughs> i'm just sitting and daydreaming <laughs> it's also so much of what when when food is your hobby in the way that it is mine mm. and yours how i used to procrastinate when i was doing other work when i was doing university studying and stuff my procrastinating was flicking through cookbooks looking at instagram and looking at what other people are cooking and that's kind of not procrastinating now that is doing research but mentally that's a really weird adjustment that that is part of work. Totally. It's so associated with just... It's entertainment for other people. Messing around. And it is entertainment for me as well, of course, but sometimes it is research. (laughs) Sometimes. Let's move on to the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish you eat the most often. So the dish... This, again, this is hard because in my line of work, I'm recipe testing a lot, and I actually don't eat the same thing that often other than things like jacket potato and baked beans fish finger sandwich but the meal that does come up a lot in our household is again quite a loose formula of a meal but it's tomato pasta it's whether that's just a really simple one with sauteed garlic and chili flakes and good quality tinned tomatoes cooked for a long time sometimes i'll whack some capers in there some olives some nice tinned tuna some chickpeas pancetta little nubbins of chorizo maybe even sausages, some form of tomato pasta is definitely the meal we eat the most. Yeah, so good. Just always hits the spot. Yeah. And now we've got tomato season is here. Mm. Why does that feel so exciting? It's so but ex- it really does. It's a really, really big does. moment in the food year. Yeah, it is. Um, so we're eating a lot of tomatoes at home and I I got back from holiday quite late on, on Sunday evening and my boyfriend had just made... He'd blitzed up loads of really fresh, beefy tomatoes and cooked them down in the kind of Marcella Hazan method where you do the big knob of butter and the onion. And he'd pan-fried some aubergines and tossed those in as well. So I got back from my holiday to the most beautiful plate of just pasta alla norma. Oh, yum. You probably have this as well, where I think I cook 90% of the time, but the 10% where he does. Such a treat. I feel like you're very well placed for quite a unique insight into the food that people love. Like you've worked at these huge companies that produce enormous amounts of food content and you've been able to have a a look at people's general cooking habits. I think we're told by the media constantly that young people are cooking less and less with the rise of Deliveroo and just how readily available food is. Have you found that to be true? I think that it's not the case in the way that we think it is. I think with COVID, people got into a habit of getting takeaways as a treat. But much more than that, they were cooking for themselves. Mm. Um, I think with the rising cost of living as well, we're only going to see more and more people trying to cook for themselves, limit how much they're going out to eat, limiting their takeaways. And 
the trends that you see, the food that people are cooking at home is generally food that is pretty simple, hearty stuff that makes them feel good. And the food that you see doing well on social media too is food that is... It ultimately makes you feel really great eating it and mm. it makes you feel really comforted. I think there's a lot of hard stuff in the world and food is a really joyous thing to cheer you up. That's really interesting because I wondered whether there was any kind of disconnect between the food that people love watching the most and then the food that people actually love cooking the most. Because I feel like a lot of the videos that do really well are like very hearty comfort foods. Mm-hmm. But then we're also being told that this young 20 generation are also like the healthiest and most health conscious and they're going to the gym when they're at university which I mean that was unheard of when we were at university (laughs) that just wasn't happening has that been any kind of your experience that that people love watching certain things but is that also what they're then cooking the most I think to be honest probably yeah there's I mean there's a lot of recipes out there online you know including some of my recipes and recipes that I did on mob which are recipes that are definitely not day-to-day recipes they might involve quite a lot of cheese or quite a lot of butter and they look beautiful as you stir them they're creamy and they're saucy or you know deep fried stuff which is not stuff you're going to cook all the time Mm. but maybe if you're having people around you might cook up some croquettas or something yeah and that kind of stuff looks so beautiful online you know the tearing into a croquetta and it's all gooey inside any kind of cheese pull as you lift something up people will always love watching content like that and I don't, it's not it's not food that people cook regularly, yeah. but it is still food that people will cook themselves as a treat. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like the, the recipes of mine that do the best are the things that are the hearty indulgent stuff. Yeah. So I do, for work, develop less recipes, the, the more kind of healthy, fresher side of things. So I probably don't give the whole picture the food that I'm eating to people. But that's the internet, like that all but the, that's time. the internet yeah. isn't it? Like totally. you can't give a 360 snapshot of your entire personality and every single thing you eat. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, you have a huge online presence. Have you ever found any of any of that side of things difficult to deal with? I think I've actually been pretty lucky and generally, generally, people are really nice. Yeah. Um, I haven't had very much trolling or negativity online touch wood that yeah, stays that way i think the there's a particular subsect of people who, who like to be nasty to you on the internet and that is men who are restaurant chefs mm. who think that you don't have kind of the right to be cooking things or they want to correct the way that you do things oh, that's interesting someone once flipped out because i said uh chef's perks about me eating a crispy bit of roast potato but that is what it is they said how dare you call yourself a chef you're not a chef how dare you you have no idea what it means to be a chef <laughs> i thought wow lighten up it's just a phrase it's just a phrase and you can call yourself anything you want yeah i wouldn't call myself a chef but I I could if I wanted to. On to happier things. Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish. What is your go-to dinner party dish? Normally when I have people around to eat, I cook a variety of lots of different dishes. It'll be kind of like a ton of different bowls on the table. But if I was really going to distill it down into what my favourite thing to cook when I have people around for dinner is, I think it says quite a lot about me, is 
a really good lasagna. Ooh. There was one that I did, I think I must have cooked it like two and a half years ago, and one of my friends talks about it whenever I see him. He's <gasps> like, when are you going to cook me that lasagna again? What was so special about it? It was a beef shin and porcini ragu that I cooked for a really long time, and then the bechamel I put telegio. Oh, my So it was really, goodness. really, like, funky. It was a really funky, gooey lasagna. Um, they obviously take a really long time to cook lasagnas, the ragu side of things and then assembling it and baking it and then being patient enough to let it rest. But I do think it's one of my favourite types of food to cook when people come round. Mm. It's something that you're not going to be cooking it to order while they're there. It's pre-made. You whack it in the oven when you know you want to eat in 45 minutes' time. And then it's done. You do a big crisp salad. Maybe you make some kind of garlicky flatbreads. I think that's a very a very good dish to make for a dinner party because it shows whoever's coming that you put a lot of love and attention into it. Everybody loves lasagna, but like you say, it's not something that people make for themselves that often. Totally. And I just think it's it's the kind of approach I'd want to encourage everyone to do if having people around, unless you're a really confident chef who loves being really finickety with stuff. I just don't think you need to make it difficult for yourself. And if people are coming around to your house to eat, they're probably coming around because they love you and they just want to eat something that's, like, delicious but simple. Mm. And it's not all about cooking something and showing off like you're some Michelin-star yeah. chef. Yeah. It's Sim- really just creating a vibe that's something that's wholesome and hearty. And Simple doesn't mean it's not delicious. Exactly. Like, some of the best things are simple. But, yeah, you can get psyched out into thinking oh goodness I've got a plan there's like really extravagant menu and yeah exactly especially if you do food as a career it can feel like I definitely felt at times like I was my friend's private chef yeah <laughs> like... it, there are phases where you do feel a bit like that going on friend holidays sometimes you're like oh I'm exhausted <laughs> those are the words and you want to do the cooking yeah you do because you to. love cooking but yeah, you're catering for like a group of eight every meal. I'm also it's a control a freak, and I think I wouldn't actually be happy if anyone else was doing it. Well, so no, it's a it double would be awful sword. if someone else would be doing it. So yeah, very stressful holidays. <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So we'd love mm. to know what is your most treasured cookbook? So I have a really quite a chunky cookbook shelf at home. There's a I think there's about 80 books on there. And I'm trying to get rid of them and get new ones in. There tends to be a one-in-one-out policy. Yeah. But there's obviously a few on there which are the staples. Um, I don't cook other people's recipes as much as I would like these days. So I think probably my most poured cookbook will be one that I reach for when you are tired and you're looking for kind of midweek inspiration when you've been cooking a lot in the day and you think, I actually don't even want to have to think about what I'm doing. I just want to follow a recipe that I know I can rely on. And I do think one of the best books for that is... East by Mira Soda. Oh, yeah. It's a book that me and my boyfriend and all my friends, I think, go over time and time again. And there's so many lovely recipes in there, which are really... Well, it's all veg and vegan food, so it's really good stuff for when you just want something quite nourishing midweek. Um, and they're all really easy to follow recipes. None of them take very long. It's a great book. Anyone who doesn't have it, or any of Mira Soda's books, to be honest, I would really, really recommend them. They're all gorgeous. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? My starter would be some kind of crazy seafood platter. There would be oysters. Mm. There would be a pint of prawns, little shell on prawns like you get in the southwest with some mayonnaise and brown bread. There would be probably some calamari. 
Um, and then possibly like some, some like mussels, some mussels in a whiny sauce. It's a pretty big starter, yeah. but we're going to go no, with it. why not? I'm not going to get full in no, this meal. It's magic. It's a magical meal. Yeah, big seafood platter. That's what I'll be having. So for the main course, I think it has to be a pie. Mm. I love pies. Again, I think it falls in the same category of a lasagna, of a food that is just simple and hearty and comforting and done well. I just don't think you can beat a pie. I think the kind of pie I'm going to go is a pie that is also my mum's favourite pie and she makes a lot is a chicken leek and bacon pie. And I'm going to break the pie rules. It's not got a base. It's just got a puff pastry top. Oh, yeah. People do get really pissy about that on the internet. Oh, that's how my mum always makes pies. So that's how I make pies. I just think people at home aren't making a base for a pie. I don't think it needs it either. The best bit is where the top meets the pastry at the top, isn't it? So you don't get that from the bottom. People do get angry about that on the internet, but I will will die on that hill that a pie doesn't need a base. I'll come with you. Please, please do. So yeah, we're going to do a chicken pancetta leek pie, mash, and some greens, some nice garlicky greens, maybe some cavolo nero, maybe some creamed spinach, any kind of green. Maybe both. Maybe both. I just love a dark, leafy green. That is always my favourite kind of side to have. Mm. The weather doesn't doesn't change my appetite no. somehow. <laughs> Do you know, in the summer, I'm more likely to make some kind of phyllo-y pie, mm. like a Spanakopita-esque situation. Yes, that's true. That's, that's a good That's the kind pie. of pie I make a lot in mm. the summer. Onto pudding? Pudding. I think this is a pudding that everyone says, so apologies, because this is probably going to be really boring. Okay. Tiramisu. I'm not really a pudding person. In restaurants, I won't order pudding most of the time. Not because I don't like pudding, but because I love starters and mains and sides and the kind of nibble that you get in the beginning. I'm more likely to load up on that side of the meal and then skip pudding. Okay. But I love a tiramisu. Why is it so good? It's just the texture is so luscious and soft and it feels really luxurious. And it falls into the same category again as, you know, a lasagna or a pie. Where it's all prepped in advance mm. and you don't have to think about it. It's the pudding equivalent of a lasagna. Exactly. <laughs> the layers, layer it up, pop it in the fridge, get it out when you need it. If I went to a dinner party and someone pulled out a homemade tiramisu, I think I'd pass out with happiness. Yeah, like, honestly, incredible. I made a tiramisu recently that I won't be able to give you the recipe for for a while, but there will be a recipe one day, which is a hazelnut tiramisu. Ooh. It tastes like a Kinder Bueno. <gasps> I thought I was going to die when I was eating it. I was like, I need someone to take this away from my house. This is so nice. I need that recipe now. (laughs) I'll give you an advance. An advance one. (gasps) Yes. Very tasty. That sounds amazing. So maybe I'll have that hazelnut. Yeah, hazelnut tiramisu. Mm. Sophie, thank you so much. Those were your desert island dishes. Thank you so much for having me. That was lovely. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Really does make such a difference. I know everyone says that, but it does. It boosts the show in the charts and it helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you again to our season sponsor, Lloyd's Bank, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.